As we go to prayer this morning, I'd like to read a few verses from the beginning of the 20th Psalm. Oh, sorry. The Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Father, we're so thankful that you hear our petitions. You have told us to come boldly before the throne of grace. Not the throne of justice, the throne of grace where we find mercy, where we find peace. Oh, Lord, we know that one day um, justice will be served, and, and we look forward to real justice here, even in, in this world, in the sense of uh, that which flows from the throne of God and through the mercy of Christ. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen us this day, that your spirit will be upon us, that you will teach us from your word, You'll keep our hearts and eyes focused on your perfect will. Lord, I thank you that you have given us yet another day in which to serve you. And I pray we will do so with divine energy, that we will do so recognizing that our lives are to be an offering poured out to you for the uh, advancement of your kingdom. Lord, as the word is proclaimed in the service and, and throughout the other classes in Sunday school, we ask you to glorify your, ma your majestic name. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may remember, even though it's been a while, that we were in 2 Samuel. And we are nearing the end of that book. We have just two chapters left, 23 and 24. The 23rd chapter of 2 Samuel gives to us a very wonderful but short little psalm. So let me read the first seven verses. 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs up out of the earth through, through sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured. For all my salvation and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? But the worthless, every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns, because they, can't, they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and a shaft and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place. This is the very last psalm that David writes. It's is self-proclaimed to be so. We notice that the psalm begins with the words, now these are the last words 
of David. Certainly, these are not the last words David ever spoke. Very probably, they're not the last words David even wrote. He probably wrote letters. He probably wrote some law or issued some official document as king. But what we have here is a proclamation that a, a kind of a literary last will and testament. These are the last words spoken by David under the inspiration of God to be scripture. This is the last psalm given by God through his shepherd, David. The, the whole first verse here, after that initial statement, uh, gives David's credentials. A man of lowly origin, as the son of Jesse. Who was Jesse? Jesse was, was nobody. You know, we think of Jesse as somebody great because he was in the line of Messiah, was the father of David. But, but he was a, a nobody, just an average, ordinary peasant, you know, living in the Bethlehem area with a bunch of sons and some sheep. And that was about all he had to uh, claim. But, but God raised David up. Notice, God raised David up. And God anointed David and God made him leader of the greatest empire in the history of Israel. From the days of Abraham to the very day in 2003, there never has been a greater Israelite kingdom than that which was under David in terms of square miles fully ruled by the king in Jerusalem. In verse 2, we discover that, well, actually at the end of verse 1, he refers to himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel. And this is, of course, because of the anointing of God upon his writing, upon the songs, the psalms uh, that he wrote, which it is God who made him, of course, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And he, he proclaims there in that second verse that the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me his word, was on my tongue. So he is making a direct acclamation of the fact that when he wrote the Psalms, this was God's word through his servant David. This wasn't just poetic David writing a little bit of creative writing. This was God speaking through David what God wanted his people to know and to hear. In verses 3 and 4, uh, he goes on to, to emphasize the value of having a king, a leader, who is fully committed to the Lord, who honors God, who exalts God. As you read in, the, in, the, in those verses, David writes, The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, what is he like? He's like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds. We wouldn't know about that. We haven't had one for a while. But when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after the rain. I mean, when you think about that, the, the, the rain, you know, the darkness, the cold, and then finally the sun breaks through and, and it begins to warm up and things start to spring out of the ground. That's always considered to be a, a wonderful time uh, for humans. And he is saying that is what the reign of a righteous, God-fearing king is like all the time. That doesn't mean, of course, that there won't be people who rise up against him. Even David had those who defamed him. 
I, I, you know, we don't know of political parties per se in those days, but there certainly was an anti-David political party. There were those who opposed David and, and wanted to overthrow him as king, and of course we know uh, some of them were his own sons. So even though you rule righteously, and even though it's a blessing to the kingdom, that doesn't mean everybody in the kingdom acknowledges it. And, you know, whatever we think about politics today, there is at least a really, really rough parallel here in that we do have a president who does exalt the Lord, who does name the name of God, who does give him honor. And yet there are, of course, numerous naysayers uh, about our president, even in, in the things he does that seem to bring honor to God and, and to the nation. We always will have those. In verse 5, David reminds his readers of the covenant that, Dave, that God had made with David and his descendants. David was not on the throne of Israel by election, by his own choice, by usurpation of the throne, by overthrowing militarily a legitimate kingdom. He was on the throne because God had chosen to put him on the throne. Let me go back and uh, read the covenant that God had given to David, beginning in uh, the age of the Prax, who, who went to a terrible public school, had a broken home, and everything was wrong in his life, and yet he comes and arises and becomes president of the United States, you know, so to speak. Uh, being a shepherd was, even though there were many shepherds in Israel, it wasn't a high-ranking position even in those days. And so for, from da for David to be brought from pasturing sheep to pasturing his people, it was a huge, it was a quantum leap. And only God could do that. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. For I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. God removed Saul. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan the prophet spoke to David. If you're, if you're a student of history, you know that at the time that uh, David ruled, about 3,000 years ago, there were, other, there were much mightier kingdoms on the earth and there were other great kings. Pharaohs in Egypt and kings over in Mesopotamia. And yet, none of them is as well known as David who, although this was the greatest kingdom in the history of Israel, was still a tiny little kingdom. Just a little kingdom. If you've ever studied that map 
of the Near East. You know, for example, that Israel today, you could throw in Lebanon uh, along with Israel. Uh, you could throw in part of Syria, most of Syria, actually, before you even get to San Bernardino County in area, you know. And that whole Middle Eastern area is, is very small in area. And David was only a little part of that. So in terms of total population, total square miles, it was just a very modest kingdom in history. And yet very few kings are as well known as David. It's really amazing. It's a thing that God has done to honor and exalt uh, this man. The enemies of David's house, rebels, such as his own sons, Amnon, you remember, and Absalom, uh, rose up against him in spite of the fact that his reign was like the sunshine after the rain. And yet there were the naysayers. And, and there was Sheba, right? And then earlier on, of course, there had been Saul who, who tried to kill David for decades. And there was Goliath and, and many others who, who came along. And, and David is saying that they were like worthless thorn bushes. They could only be dealt with with weapons of iron. You couldn't deal with them gently because they were fools. And the only way they could be dealt with was to be cut off. And uh, they would end up being destroyed. It, it says at the end of, of, da of David's psalms here, psalm here that they will be completely burned with fire in their place. These, these men, these rebels, these destroyers of God's kingdom would themselves be destroyed by fire. Does that mean fire now and fire later? Probably. But you know what's interesting in, in all of this, as uh, David uh, says here in, in verse 5, Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me. And we think, oh, well, let's see, an everlasting covenant. See, David was followed by Solomon. Solomon did some really bad things. Rehoboam came along, and he was a jerk. And, and therefore, 10 of the 12 tribes pulled away from the house of David. And eventually, of course, Judah will be overrun by Nebuchadnezzar's uh, armies, and they'll be all carried off into captivity. And so how can it be forever? Well, we all know, I think, uh, but I'd like to... Uh, Read, a, read from the ninth uh, chapter of uh, Isaiah. This is, of course, this, one of the passages always read at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so we know, of course, that it is in the Messiah that the Davidic kingdom is eternal because kingdom of God under Messiah will last forever. It's a kingdom to which we all aspire. The remaining portion of chapter 23 of uh, 2 Samuel is a rather interesting uh, passage. It deals with a roster of David's mighty men. This list is found very closely paralleled in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. 
and most of that chapter is filled up with basically this same list. But what we discover if we look at this list and compare it to the First Chronicles list is the First Chronicles list is put way earlier in time. The First Chronicles list shows up right after the anointing of David as king over Israel. And then you have this list. In 2 Samuel, we discover the list is at the very end of his reign. I mean, chapter 24 is, is just about it for David. And, and so we have tremendous difference in the placement of, of this list of the mighty men. What we derive from this is that the men named here were apparently the core of the army which God used to build the Davidic Empire. I mean, we know God gave David the empire, but he didn't just, you know, it wasn't a turnkey kingdom. Here, David, I give it to you, walk in, you took it, everybody's going to bow to you. No, David had to fight. He had to lead armies. He had to conquer people. People had to die in order for this to happen. And so these were the men who were in the leadership capacity in establishment of the great Davidic empire. And so what is the author of 2 Samuel doing here? He is giving this as an epilogue, as a statement of those remembering those who helped David build this great empire. Whereas in Chronicles, they're trying to put it in chronological order, more than 2 Samuel is anyway. And so the list appears at the beginning, right after uh, David is anointed as king over Israel. Now, if you read this list, you'll discover, for example, certain in, in individuals are named here, one of which is Joab's brother Asahel. Now, you may have already forgotten about Asahel, because it's been a long time since we talked about him. But he is listed as one of the 30 great men under David. And the fact that he appears in this list in 2 Samuel gives credence to the First Chronicles location of the passage. In other words, First Chronicles puts it in chronological order, which 2 Samuel is not doing. Because Asahel was killed way back at the very beginning of David's reign. So he is still not around here at the end of David's reign. He's been dead a long time. He's been dead for 40 years or 30 years. So obviously, uh, 2 Samuel is remembering back. It's not listing the great men that existed at the hour of, of David's uh, demise. What was the role of these men? Why are they listed? Why are they given for us? Well, it's highlighted more in 1 Chronicles uh, than here. Uh, and in 1 Chronicles 11.10, we read these words. Now these are the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord. At the top of the list stood three men, Joshab, Eliezer, and Shammah. These were the elite of David's mighty men. Were these three regimental commanders over the 600? Well, we don't know exactly what the capacity was, but they were at the very top of the pyramid under David, save for Joab. So let's look at uh, the passage beginning at verse 8. We'll just uh, read from 8 through 17 to begin with. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshua Bashabeth, a Tachemanite, 
chief captain. He was also called Adino the Esnite because 800 were slain by him at one time. And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He arose and struck the Philistines with his hand until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now after him was Shammah, the son of Aji, a Hararite, and the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David in harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Joshua, Joshua, the Bashabeth. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Write it down. Tell your kids. I want the first kid to be known as Joshua Bashabet. <laughs> it means he who sat in the seat. The implication being chief position. And we are told that he was chief. He was the captain of the captains. Literally the head of the three. So you've got this troika, this triad here. Uh, at the top. And he's the leader of those three. The passage says that he was also called Adino because he had slain 800 men. Well, Adino means well endowed. The question, does this mean that he was physically well endowed? In other words, was he like a Samson, you know, a mighty, physically mighty man? Or does it simply mean that he was well endowed with victories? You know, a man like the old World War II airplanes, you know, where you stuck a symbol of a swastika or a rising sun every time you shot down an enemy plane, you know, notched your gun or whatever. Is that, is that the idea here? You know, Adino, because of all the great victories that he had, killing 800 men. Well, we don't know. But what's interesting is that both the family name given here, Tachemonite, and the, apparently the clan name, Esnite, there is no other biblical connection to those words. They don't show up anywhere else. And so we don't know really what this means. Where did he come from? You know, who is he connected to? What tribe is he from? We don't know, but we know he was a mighty man. Second in this mighty triad was Eliezer. Now, you know Eliezer is a very widely used uh, name. It means God has helped. And so there are a lot of Eliezers in Scripture, one of whom was a, was a great priest 
who was one of the most exemplary men in biblical history, going back to the time of uh, Moses. But he was the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. Now, of course, unfortunately, in English, Dodo has a, usually has a fairly negative connotation. <laughs> but it means his beloved. So really, to be called God has helped, son of his beloved, that's a pretty good name, you know. And, and he lives up to his name. The Ahohites were a, a clan of the tribe of Benjamin. So he was a Benjaminite. Eliezer was one of the three mighty men who stood shoulder to shoulder. And it was the three mighty men who stood shoulder to shoulder were probably included the other two here that are in this first list. Who stood shoulder to shoulder uh, uh, with David against the Philistines. Four against the masses. And, and, and we, we don't know exactly when the event took place. It doesn't describe it in enough detail. It just simply says that these, these four stood shoulder to shoulder after the Israelite army had fled. So the Israel army had fled, and there was left standing David and these three mighty men. And they wailed away at the Philistine army all by themselves. And they wailed away and won a great victory. How, you know, I don't care how strong they are. How long can four men stand against an army? Probably not too long. But the reason they were able to is given in the passage. Because it says, the Lord brought a great victory that day. The victory was through the Lord. Four can stand against an army if God is with the four. They did their part, of course. But it was God who achieved the impossible. Think about it now. We're not talking about the day in which, well, let, let me recall a scene that you probably have forgotten. Uh, the great battle of Omdurman, which occurred in 1898. You, you remember it, I know. Um, <clears throat> when Lord Kitchener brought the British army up the Nile River to deal with the whirling dervishes. And he had this army of uh, 15,000 half British regulars, half Egyptian troops. And, and they faced 50 or 60,000 of these, these fanatical Islamic dervishes. And in the battle which followed, um, they wiped out the entire dervish army. Well, didn't kill them all, but killed most or captured and, and lost, I think, 50 men. You think, ah, how can that be? Well, it's because they had machine guns and cannons and rifles and, and the whirling dervishes had spears and swords and bows and arrows. Well, this is not what we're talking about here. These aren't four guys with M16s facing a bunch of guys with swords and spears. David and his men have exactly the same weapons that the enemy has. And so obviously in the natural, a victory is impossible. But the victory is possible through the Lord. And that keeps being repeated in here. What, what we keep finding is that even though David had these mighty men, the victories were won by the power of God. And what we find is that the army did show up again sheepishly to pick up the spoil. They came back and looked around and the enemy was dead all over the place and the four guys were standing there and, and they went around picking up all the spoil. It must have felt, felt uh, a bit foolish, I would think. Third in the great triad was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Hararite. Uh, there's something about this man's names which gives a sense that he might not have been a full-blooded Israelite. First of all, Shama means desolation. Now, why he has that name, maybe it's because he created desolation when he fought. I don't know. I can't imagine somebody naming his child at birth desolation. Oh, here comes desolation, you know. 
it's not a real encouraging uh, name to give to your child. And Aji means fugitive. And the, 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 the clan name Hararite is not a Hebrew word. It's of Gentile origin. So there's strong feeling that this person, even though Shama is used of other Hebrews, that this man might have been part Gentile. Well, whatever was his blood background, he fought as a champion against the Philistines. Notice the Philistines are the bad guys in all of these uh, events. Uh, the Philistines get to be the, uh, the, the, the fodder for the mighty men in all of these battles. I, you know, I, I think it would have been real discouraging to be a Philistine soldier at this time. You know? It's kind of like, oh no, it's my turn to go to battle and get killed? You know? Again, it's very improbable, even, you know, it, we're, we read here that the Philistines were gathered into a troop and there was a field of lentils, it's a good thing we knew that, and, and the people fled from the Philistines. So here it sounds like he's left alone to try to defend this plot of land. And he took his stand in the midst of the plot and, and defended it and struck the Philistines. But notice the last phrase. But the Lord brought about a great victory. The Lord brought about a great victory. Something you probably do remember is um, at the Battle of Manassas Junction. You know, in uh, 1861, at the beginning of the Civil War, you, you remember that one certainly maybe a little better than Omdurman, even though it was older, earlier in time. In, in that battle, when a certain part of the battle was beginning to go badly for the Confederates, even though they ultimately won the battle, one of the generals shouted out and said, look at Jackson over there, he's standing like a stone wall, be like the Virginians, and kind of rallied the troops around the man who then became known as Stonewall Jackson as a, as a result who with just a few men was holding off a whole large element of, of Union troops. Well, even though Stonewall Jackson is said to have been a Christian, I'm not sure God was with him exactly in the same way at least as he was with uh, Shama here, since he was fighting on the wrong side. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, all right, we have the listing, <laughs> in case you don't. Remember, Joan Stonewall Jackson was a Confederate. <laughs> if you're from the South, just ignore all that. <laughs> what to me is the most fascinating thing of all about the Civil War is the man who won such great fame as commander of the Confederate troops throughout most of the war and was so highly honored was offered command of the Union forces first. And he could have been the commander of the Union forces rather than of the Confederate forces. And had he taken the Union forces, the Civil War probably would have been fairly short. Robert E. Lee, Robert e. Lee yes. Robert E. Lee was undoubtedly the finest commander in the entire war. Grant may have won in the end, but Grant was a drunk. And, you know, uh, Lee was a, was a Christian gentleman. Well, anyway, that's a slight aside here. Yeah. <laughs> Soothing the Southerners, yes. Ooh, we got a late start today, didn't we? I hate to leave out the story about David here and the water. 
let me just do it quickly. After the credentials of the three mighty men are listed, there's this wonderful story that we read there in verses 13 to 17. The exact historical context of this, this story of chivalry is, is uncertain, but it's believed to have been the time when the Philistines invaded Israel right after David was coronated king, and they came in to test his mettle. Is this guy really capable of running this country? We'll find out. We'll invade. And David had marched his men down into the Shephelah from the hill country down into the, well, from the mountains down into the uh, foothills. And he had set up his headquarters in the cave of Adullam. Now, David knew the cave of Adullam very well because he had been there many times before, particularly when he was being chased by Saul. Scripture says it was harvest time, which means somewhere in the summer period, which is hot and dry in Israel, just like it is here in Reading. And David was very, very thirsty. And in his thirst, all he could think of was the beautiful, fresh flowing water of, of, the, of the spring, the well that was up in <coughs> Bethlehem, which of course he knew so well from his childhood. So he, he, he longed out loud. And three of the 30 men, not of the top three, but of the next rank, the 30, three of them, of some of David's most trusted companions, took David's wish as their command. And they fought their way up to Bethlehem, which was 12 miles away from, the, from Adullam and up in the hills. They fought through the garrison at Bethlehem. Scripture says that there was a Philistine garrison at Bethlehem. These three guys fought off the garrison, got the water, and came all the way back down to David. And certainly they did this all in one day. Marched 12 miles up through the enemy, fought the enemy, came back down with the water, and, and uh, brought it to David. And David was so overwhelmed by the loyalty and the sacrifice of these men that he couldn't drink the water. He couldn't drink the water. It had become too sacred to drink. Instead, he poured it out as a libation to the Lord. This demonstrates David's wisdom. He understood that the satisfaction of his thirst was not worth the risk of the lives that these mighty men had taken. David prayed, therefore, a powerful prayer, which we read in verse 17. Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? David honored the men then by, in effect, declaring that your great effort to bring water to me is in effect a sacrifice to the Lord himself. Because you did it for your king in honor of your king who is God's chosen servant, you have made a sacrifice to the Lord by your great effort. And one of the great lessons coming out of this is the ultimate value of personal sacrifice. God does not ignore personal sacrifice. God sees everything that we do in his name and for his honor. And we are challenged, of course, by these three men so loved their prince that they were willing to risk their lives just to bring him a drink of water. How much more should we be willing to make this great sacrifice to demonstrate our love for the one who died for us? It's a, it's a wonderful comparison. And uh, our service should be a libation to the Lord. We should pour out our lives to Him as a sacrifice for the advancement of His kingdom and His call upon our lives.
Let me end with the passage that you all know so very well. But it fits right here, Romans 12, the first two verses. Many of you certainly have memorized it as I did at one time. I therefore urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That was in effect what these men did, not knowing it even at the time that they did it. But that's what it proved to be. Well, next uh, Sunday we'll begin with verse 18 and we'll look at the 30, uh, at least some of, the, some of the 30. We're not going to look at all of them individually because uh, not much is said about many of them.